welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. And I've decided for the meeting after this, I'm going to change what I was planning to talk about. And I'm going to talk about the tools to use to deal with that aberrant thought. Okay? So that you're not left with, okay, I got an aberrant thought. How do I block it from going into lust? So that will be kind of the orientation for the talk after this. Come up, share what you want, ask questions if you want. Uh, this is, uh, what if we say, open mic Sunday for those who want. Okay. <clears throat> Ready? Anyone could share except Dave. <laughs> Harvey, I had uh, actually one of the guys that's here in the room shared with me about a week ago that he had the impression that he was feeling shame and some other people were feeling shame over having these aberrant thoughts and really thinking that that's lust and really feeling like that's lust and feeling like I'm doing something wrong or feeling really bad, really down about having these thoughts, even when we're surrendering them. So could you talk maybe on that idea of maybe when we have shame that we shouldn't be having over a situation which really isn't uh, lust or any kind of defect on our part, or or at least not an intentional defect on our part. Okay, well, let's use some words when we know we're out of the first step. What do we mean we're out of the first step? It means that I am out of believing I have a disease. How can we be powerless if we could use willpower to deal with it? Okay? On our usual model, I'm bad getting good. If I were just good enough, I could use willpower. Now, the example is, and some of you have heard this that I've said in the past, if I'm on, if I've eaten at a restaurant and the food was bad and I'm on the interstate and all of a sudden I know I have the runs and it says one mile to the next rest stop, my willpower could hopefully get me to the next will rest up my willpower and other muscles okay <laughs> if it says next rest stop 50 miles no willpower or muscle power is going to stop it from happening because it is a physiological reality for my body 
I have a disease. If I'm out of the first step, I'm going into shame. I should have done that. I could have done it. I, oh man, I should have done that. So what's the first word we know means we're out of the first step? Should. The minute we're in that word should or could, I'm out of the first step. God, I am powerless, God. I try over and over again, God. I am powerless. I can't stop this crap from happening. You gave me this disease, God. I don't understand it. But I this is it. I'm powerless. I can't stop it, God. I give it to you. The minute we go into should and could, it implies if only I had squeezed a little harder. (laughs) And a little longer. But it was 50 miles. Okay? So, in Nashville, they hear this over and over again. When I'm into shame, I'm out of my first step. I'm out of my first step. I've lost automatically. Yes, I believe I could do it. By the way, this applies to character defects. If we don't accept that I am powerless over being competitive, how can I then do a sixth and seventh step and say, God, help me. I'm so competitive. Please don't let this interfere with my functioning to help other people. God, take it. Okay. So, how do we get around this shame? One thing, and it's so complicated, I'm sure none of you will be able to get this. But I'll try anyway. You wipe that crap off. You go like this. The minute you feel it, you wipe it off. It's just nasty old energy. And you go from the center of your sternum with your hands back to back and you sweep out to the outside and brush it off your arms on either side. People think I'm crazy. Well, first of all, they're right. Okay? <laughs> Who would get up in front of a group of these people and start wiping their chest? Now, where did I learn this from? Real massage therapists. <laughs> real ones. After they've done a real therapeutic massage, you'll watch them brush off some of the energy that they've collected. So people in Nashville will laugh, oh, Harvey, that's ridiculous. And then over a period of time, you come to our meetings, and you'll, you'll know especially who my sponsees are. You'll see them in the middle of the meeting going like this. <laughs> I do it all the time, and it's not a tick. You know? <clears throat> Why do I do it? You'll say something at a meeting. That will remind me of something so crazy I did 
And I will go into such massive shame at that moment. And brush that crap off. That easy. And it's gone. It's gone. And it helps me come back to the fact that when I am drunk on lust, I I say this frequently, I am the most modest person you could imagine. I'll kind of turn around getting undressed with my wife sometimes. I'm modest. I am so hygienic, I'll shower a couple of times a day. I wash my hands, all OCD type stuff. But when I'm in my disease, I get nude anywhere at any time in front of anybody, including in public. And I do things so unbelievably unhygienic that people start cringing when I mention it at meetings. Now, as a courtesy to you, I'm on good behavior. I'm not going to mention it right now. Especially it's on tape and (laughs) people might not be able to talk about it to each other afterwards when they're in their car. And that gets to the next point about shame. Only by bringing it to the light can it be taken away. Being explicit does more for shame to get rid of shame than anything you could imagine. And this is one of those no-nos that you never talk about at these meetings because we read it, you can't be explicit, you can't say this, you can't say that. I couldn't do it not being explicit. I call my sponsor up and I say the exact stuff. People who call me aren't allowed to say I'm lusting today. They're not allowed. I won't listen to it. Or if I'm having a sexual thought, I, I say, don't give me that crap. I don't know what you're talking about, you're lusting. How can I know what you mean, you're lusting? What do you mean, you're lusting? Oh, I'm having this thought about someone. I said, what kind of thought about someone? What is the thought? I'm not a mind reader. How are you going to get rid of it if you, a burden shared is half as heavy? They'll say, well, I was thinking about having sex with this gal. And then I'll say, I'm not going to go there. You're fudging again. What do you mean sex with this gal? They have to tell me what the hell they're talking about. If they don't, what happens first of all to me? We think not in words. We think in pictures. So when you say a certain word to me, sex, then my disease has to project out automatically. Uh, like I'll give you a thing. I don't want you guys thinking about a hippopotamus. What's the first thing you did? You pictured a hippopotamus. Okay. So I don't want to have to be the one to have an automatic scene 
a word thought to base on what they're telling me. This it happens automatically because we're thinking in words, in pictures. We think we're thinking in words, but we're not. We're thinking in pictures. From best I've been told and experienced myself. Therefore, you're really doing me a disservice. Because then my mind's picturing it when it first of all is going to be what I think is sex. And I get even more into it. I'll be more specific with it. And dreams. Oh, I had a bad sex dream last night. I don't go for that. Man, when I share my erotic dreams, I just say it. Or else I'm going to be stuck with it. I often call people and say, hey, someone just called me and said such and such and it's sticking in my mind. I'm giving it to you right now. You do with it what you have to do with it. (laughs) I just, hey, we're here to help each other about that. This is a selfish program. You can't hear what I have to say. Take the phone out. That's what I do sometimes. I just pull the phone to the side. But at least you're saying it. Whether I hear it or not. And I don't do that often. There are just very few things I I have to do that get too close to my my own past and addictive issues. But I'll go like that sometimes. By the way, you know how I learned that trick? By dealing with a very abusive mother, may she rest in peace, she'd start beating me up on the phone and I'd just put the phone there. This is a recovery. I'd go, she'd still, when she took a breath, I'd say, oh, mom, how's your sister feeling? And we'd change subjects. And then I didn't have to carry all that stuff. By the way, we're going to learn next one a lot about tools. This is really a a program of tools into action. You know, what is it? Chapter six into action. It is a spiritual program of action. That's what it says in step 10. We're not we just can't say, oh, I'm spiritual today. It's our action that produces the spiritual self. So when we're in shame, we need to especially share it explicitly. And I'm going to be to the point to dramatize this. Hitler had this unbelievable situation with words. He would find wonderful words for some of the roughest things that ever happened in the world. He had this word, the final solution. Man, it sounds so pretty. What was it? 13 million people, you know, 6 million Jews, or millions of gypsies and homosexuals. He'd get into trains or just shoot them down, put them in pits, put them in ovens. Final solution. So, when I work with people, 
I cut through all those pretty words. What it comes down to is I'll finally get from the person, I am a perpetrator. I am a voyeur. If that's all the stuff I am, I am an exhibitionist. Until you actually share your, your fantasies, your, your first thoughts, your dreams, heck, no one's going to really be able to help you. Get a handle on it, then be able to share it. I sponsor this great guy, I think he has seven and a half years of sobriety. He got about three months into sobriety. I was sponsoring him and he said, I need to tell you this. I just haven't been able to tell you. I have a shoe fetish and I spend, I've spent hours before recovery going to shoe stores, touching the shoes, getting jobs as a salesperson, uh, looking at ads. I go and stop on the interstate, pick up shoes, women's shoes, and masturbate in the shoes. And I said, thank you for sharing it. Please share it at a meeting. He said, I can't share that at a meeting. I said, you cannot not share it at a meeting. So a few days later, he shared it at a meeting. And after the meeting, all these guys ran up to him and said, thank you so much. We've been carrying this by ourselves. We've done the same thing. And man, there's hardly a meeting he doesn't share it. We're so alone in this disease. And, you know, we're being taped and I'm really being on good behavior in quotes. I am so explicit that you can't imagine how explicit I am at meetings. Now, we foster being explicit. Matter of fact, if we're too explicit, someone raises their hand, the person stops talking for a minute, and we suggest the person who raised their hand leave the room until they're ready to come back to finish hearing it. Whatever. Now, this does not apply to people who are drunk and who have been relapsing a lot and come in off from the streets just masturbated an hour before and start sharing all this stuff. That's not explicit. That's drunk talk. Okay? And after a while, the maturity of the group kind of kicks in. So what I say cannot be a general principle. This, it doesn't apply in general, but it applies with recovery and developing recovery. Matter of fact, when someone just relapses, I tell them to uh, that I can't talk. You know, I get calls from all over the world, all over. And it's like every sponsor who's just exasperated with their sponsees for relapsing tells them to call Harvey. And <laughs> I get these calls. I'll say, I masturbated. I did this three hours ago. I said, hey, hopefully I could help you, but I won't talk to you for another week or two after you're sober called me this you're drunk right now and you're not going to hear a word I say and I'm not embarrassed to do that this, I believe this is a disease 
And I believe people get drunk. You know, I've had experiences of people I know, people I've sponsored. I've been at international conferences with them. And they're in the middle of a heavy conversation with me. And all of a sudden, their head starts turning. And I had become invisible. They saw some gorgeous gal. And they were lost. They were lost. And I'll try to end the conversation with them. But for that time, they're drunk. On. Lust. You got it. On lust. They noticed it. They did not use the tools we're going to talk about. They kept going for it. And they got drunk. On lust. I once had an experience where must have been sober a half a year, a year. And I'd pick especially guys. I, I would do guys, gals, mix them together, you name it. Well, I'd pick guys off the street. And I was walking down the street and I saw two guys up ahead. And I said, Harvey, you don't take a second look. If you don't take a second look, within 30 seconds, you'll never remember again. If you take a second look, you're going to remember it forever. Don't take a second look. And then my disease said, but they could be robbers. <laughs> and they could hit you and steal your wallet and you'll be all messed up. <clears throat> and I'll never forget that moment. I said, i rather them kill me than have to go back the old way. I have to give my disease the finger over and over again. It knows I mean business. About three months ago, I was in the shower. I don't know, I'm 71. I don't know why this stuff still happens. All of a sudden, something started to happen. I wasn't even soaping myself very much. And it started to happen. And I had it, and I said, oh, for women who are listening to this tape, there are no women here. Use, don't use your imagination for what I'm talking about, but whatever. Um, the guys know. So um, I said to my disease, if you don't leave me alone this moment, this very second, I am getting out of this shower even though I'm all soaked up. And it knows I mean business. How does it know it? Because years ago, I would get preoccupied. Am I going to get some from my wife today? And by the way, we had a 21-month celibate period. And that's, we'll talk a little about that this evening, maybe. And, 
and I would get preoccupied and I'd say to my disease, if you don't leave me alone, even if my wife asks, I will have to say no. And it did not want that. And it would leave me alone. And it knows I mean business. I mean business with my disease. The minute you end up ever acting out or actively lusting by saying, well, I had a rough day at the office or my kids are all messed up or I lost all my money today or this or that. The minute you cater to your lust <coughs> from an excuse, it will always find an excuse so you'll use it. Once you've taught it, that you will respond to it if the outside changes enough. And that's why we say, I don't act out today, even if my ass falls off. Today, and I say to my higher power every morning when I do a two-way contract, God, help me not act out today, and I won't act out today, but I'm not promising you tomorrow. Because I have a disease, and the disease is similar to diabetes. And it doesn't matter how well you take your insulin today, and how well your sugar is today, if tomorrow you don't take your insulin and you have severe diabetes, you're not going to be well tomorrow. We have a daily reprieve. This stuff lasts for one day. We get reborn. But unlike religious programs, ours does not last forever. It lasts for 24 hours. I can be a different person today. And then tomorrow, if I do the same thing tomorrow or today that I did yesterday, I have a chance for another day of recovery. So we have shame is a no-no. We work with it by being explicit. We work with it by, you know, sharing it with others. We work with it by um, brushing it off. But whatever we do, we don't stay in it. Because shame also means, I didn't do a crappy thing. I am crap. And the minute you say you're crap, then you have just given your higher power the finger. Because God does not make crap. Next question or whatever. Hey, Harvey. Uh, Chris W., sexaholic. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Um, knowing that uh, the relapse often starts uh, long before masturbation, long before the trip to the strip club, uh, how do you work with your sponsees in terms of figuring out what sobriety is and isn't, what a slip is and isn't, and when a, a relapse, when it's time to pick up another chip and when you're, you're in your addiction? Great question. <clears throat> I, I can't do that for the sponsee. It never works. This is a disease 
that's manifested in me through the inability to take directions. That's why it says in the big book, these are the suggestions we give to you. Right before the steps. And then, after the steps, the next sentence, they then say, what an order! I can't go through with it. How could it be an order if it was a suggestion? <laughs> well, they know us. Before they, you know, they set us up. Hey, here are a few suggestions. Man, we do it or we don't make it. The person has to come to the realization of saying, in the crucible of my experience, okay? In my life, if I walk into a porno store, except to pull one of you all out, if I walk in purposefully, knowing it's a porno store, that is a loss of my bottom line sobriety. If I have sex with my wife more than once in a day, not that that's ever going to happen, but uh, if I do, if that's my pattern of abusive sex with her, that is the loss of my bottom line sobriety. If I go into a male shower room where a bunch of guys are naked showering and I purposely went in for the purpose of looking, that is a loss of my bottom line sobriety. Uh, I, I sponsor a guy who his it's not my program. I, it's not on my bottom line about fantasy. But his is if he has an involved fantasy, that's, that's a loss of his sobriety. I mean, that's a very individualized thing. And we'll maybe talk about it, about it later. Um, since the program, we've been told, is that we can't make it without honesty. To thine own self be true. I'm going to be fooled every time. I sponsor a lot of people and they have lots and lots of sobriety. But one of the nicest guys I sponsor uh, has a year and a half and he called me two days ago. He lost his sobriety. And uh, I had missed it. I was working eighth and ninth step with him. And here I am talking about lust with you all. And missed that he was actively lusting. Just missed it. When, what I usually say to people is, I'm not sure if this is the loss of your sobriety right now. You will definitely find out in a week or so. I say, if it is the loss of your sobriety, there is no way you're not going to do something more or again. If it's not, it will just pass. There are all kinds of things that come up, like guys having spontaneous ejaculations. You know, I'm not going to tell them it's a loss of their sobriety. There's some guys, you know, their prostate gets all messed up. They, they, they've used to having sex every three hours or an orgasm, and then they're gone for eight, nine months, no sex. And, and then they're sitting on a toilet seat and they get in a, 
You know, there are certain toilet seats I sit on. I start feeling aroused. I've had to learn. I can't choose those, that seat in my house. I, I don't understand why this stuff happens. But I'll chalk it up, but I'll say, hey, if you do that again, this is what I suggest, that you change your sobriety. Uh, I'm real rough on doing retroactive ones. I kind of try to do pro the next time. This becomes self-evident after a while. Uh, with this guy, I missed it. Something had happened to him about a week or so ago. I said, well, you'll know in a week or so. I probably missed it because I like him a whole lot. And it's very tough when you're sponsoring people that you really, really like. That you end up maybe being a little easy. And pretty much I tell people to get new sponsors. I tell them you, you need more than I can give you right now. So I, I'm kind of, kind of rough with, with relapsing to a point. You know, there's some flexibility, but not a whole lot. I also notice the more time you spend with someone talking, a lot of times the less they're getting out of it. It's just something I've discovered over the years. You know, whatever. By the way, this is not essay. This is my experience, strength and hope. This is not an essay opinion. This is my own personal opinion. This whole talk is a workshop based on my interpretation. This is not essay as such. This is my interpretation of what's, how I do it. But you know what? It's worked for me for over 27 years and three months. And why not at least try it the way someone's been doing it that's been working for them? If your way's working, great. You don't have to try someone else's way. But if you're chronically relapsing, man, why not try, you know, anybody's way other than yours? I want to I bring that up. I had, uh, he, he must have like 22 years now, but I don't sponsor him, but he lived in Nashville. His name is Judson, and he moved to the West Coast, and he has tapes all around. And um, he came in as a very young man, and he'd call, and he'd say, how's my, ab- uh, how's my aborigine today? And I'd look at him and say, after months of him calling me an aborigine, I said to him, why do you call me an aborigine? You know, kind of funny word to call me. He said, well, I figure if I have a problem and I went to the furthest outback in Australia and I asked the first aborigine I would find there, he would give me a better answer than I could give myself. <laughs> so I'm his aborigine. What can I tell you? Yes. Hi, my name's Josh Sexaholic. Hey, Josh. Um, I guess 
that. My question is, first thing I'll just check in is that I just had some kind of fantasies going on in my head uh, recently just involving pornographic uh, sites and, and multiple sex partners and oral sex. And I just need to check that in before I share. Yeah, that's too vague. Yeah. <laughs> too vague. What are the porno sites you're talking about? Um, well, it was... It was a, a scene where a man was receiving uh, oral sex from two women. Okay. And, uh, okay. Yeah. Just, okay. So I didn't want to be drunk on that before I, uh, okay. before I shared. Because but I, you will stay drunk on it if you don't say it explicitly. Okay. okay? That's why it was so important for you to say it. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because we never say the shame piece. There's always a piece we don't want to say because we're out of the first step with it. So, in other words, that's the stuff that attracts you. Okay? Multiple partners. Or am I making this up? No. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Hey, you're smiling. That's nice. Okay. Um, My question was, uh, yeah, I've got about... 15 and a half months now and uh, you know I after observing the past relationships I've had I mean none of them really last more than three or four months um, and all of it's chemistry based all of it's looks based all of it's completely initial attraction based um, and I'm just wondering you know where is like the room for romance and all that stuff once you enter the dating field because I'm still not there yet and I'm wondering where is it healthy passion where is it lust what's you know what is it supposed to be because then in my mind I get in this black and white gray area of well, I'm not supposed to be attracted or there's supposed to be no chemistry and I'm not supposed to let, you know I just don't know you know I mean it's, it's not really talked about too much we keep it real simple in Nashville as soon as someone starts dating they're not allowed to date one person. They got to date three women, not at the same date. <laughs> okay. If I could build from your pornographic thing, so we need to just go from there. Now, by the way, you're watching God heal through laughter. Okay, it's the most de-shaming thing we could do. You know, first of all, most of us have had the same similar stuff, if not exactly a variation of. It. You know, there's I in a, the other day when I spoke a few months ago in Atlanta, I tell this story that this guy in Nashville, he moved to Hawaii, but he used to say. If anyone feels so much shame for what they've done or their thinking, and they want to kill themselves, before they kill themselves, they should come to a meeting where Harvey's at and say what they did explicitly, and he'll tell you how he did it at least three times, and you'll leave there feeling wonderful. Okay? (laughs) Now, by the way, I did a lot of that stuff. And I always needed more. Mine got to a place where the guys and the gals together, and then it got to a place I needed to seduce policemen. 
Oh, your eyebrows went up for a minute. Is that a new one? Yeah. Well, it never can be satisfied. It always needs a bigger dosage. It's just like heroin. You cannot, if you're truly addicted, stay on that. And chances are that's not the original way your, your fantasy started. None of us started there, but we kept needing a bigger and bigger dose. And then we get in relationships where the people aren't into that stuff, if they're not sex addicts, and then we're always feeling less than or shorted out that we're comparing them to this non-reality stuff that we find on pornography. And I want to mention this, by the way, because... Um, I'm intrigued. I'm 71 and I'm, I'm into technology. I like you know, my iPad here and all this stuff. And the, a guy Saturday yesterday was saying such an important thing at the meeting. He was thanking the existence of wireless phones and how important wireless phones are for his recovery and how he's glad he's been sober. Is that guy here today? Okay, and how glad he's sober today at a time where they have wireless phones. And I said to myself, man, is he on target? But it's just like lust and sex. Here is a wireless phone that helps us with recovery. But that same phone, we could have sex with other people through the, through the video. I have Skype, I have all that stuff. People coming in having active sex lives without ever even meeting the people. That the same thing can be used for a beautiful thing or for a thing that keeps getting me sicker and sicker. So about dating, we suggest people date three people at the same time so they don't get obsessed with anyone. They then see which ones they want to date again. If they're out with a gal and they don't want to date her again, they don't ask her again, they get a new third one. After a period of months, you will know who God's bringing to you, not who you're bringing. Okay? And it becomes a process of letting God bring it to you. And you kind of put, put this, uh, you say, God, I don't pick them well. You need to pick them for me. The best one, you'll have to help me with that name of the movie. Jack Black was in it. Uh, oh, Shallow Hell. Shallow Hell. That's us. His father programmed him that the, uh, to be a man, he has to have this gorgeous hunk. And then he got to get these magic glasses or something happens to his eyesight. And this fat, fat gal, he falls in love with. He thinks she's the most beautiful thing in the world. Okay. You know, my, um, two weeks ago, we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. And, uh, We've been married longer in recovery than out of recovery now. And 
my wife's going on to 70 and every now and then I look at her and she just looks so beautiful to me. You know? Uh, it's something else. And it happens. It starts happening. And through the crucible of your experience, you will eventually get tired of going for the chemistry. And you'll start doing something that's very hard for sex addicts to do in recovery. Let people fix you up. To go on blind dates being fixed up. Very difficult. Now, I have been through so many guys I've sponsored who have been married, got remarried, whatever the marriage was, now have kids. It works. This program people really could get married and have children. This is not a program, a monastic program. It really works. And what you do is when you do find that gal, you start calling people who know people who have been married, got married in recovery, and you have them walk through with you on it. Because there are a lot of guys who have had experience with it. Okay? And many guys in this program are so attracted to chemistry because they're really frightened of women. Judson, I'll never forget when he said he, he, he was talking about attractions to breasts and he said, you know, it's interesting that what I've discovered is that, uh, that I am really frightened of nudity. See, underneath this all, we usually have fear. You know. So, this is Judson, if you heard me and I broke the anonymity, sorry. But, uh, <laughs> thanks for the question. Thank you. Did I answer a little of it? Yeah, or, it no, well, <laughs> we thank you. But if not, you know, keep asking until you feel you got the answer. Yeah. Hi, I'm Alan. Hi, Alan. Um, my definition of sex is very limited and it, it is basically that sex is only intimate union that includes physical, mental, emotional, spiritual with a person of the opposite sex in a committed marriage. And that's my definition of sex. Having said that, um, I'll be 60 in six months and I've never had sex. Um, all my acting out has been with same sex other males, and um, I knew that that's what I wanted to do since I was 10, which was way before puberty. I suppressed it until I was 30, so I didn't act out with anybody and hardly acted out with myself because masturbation has not been a problem with me ever. Um, but from 30 to 55, I went off the deep end and was totally insane for 25 years with what I was doing with other males. Um, having said that, I'm, I'm almost 60. At 55, I came into the program, and my question is, I don't know if I'm in the right program. I, I, you know, I feel like I'm in the wrong room a lot of the times. I feel like I'm not attracted to females. Is my goal to be spiritually healed so that I will be attracted to females? Or just to know that I'm going to be celibate for the rest of my life, which I'm also okay with if that's what it has to be. I guess I just need hope to say that I'm in the right program and that, you know, that 
I'm not totally different than every single other person in a room of 50 guys. And also, I have a problem with triggers in the rooms when I'm in meetings, because out of the 50 guys, there's always going to be four or five that are extremely attractive to me. So I guess what I want to hear from you is you know, some stuff about people who have no attraction to females, don't consider themselves gay, don't want to live a gay lifestyle, and just, you know, where do I fit? Am I in the right place? I've I went through the steps. I have sponsor. I sponsored other people. I just always have that feeling in the back of my head that I'm not a sexaholic because, you know, I'm not married. I'm not attracted to females. Yeah, you're doing a classic thing that my sponsor would get me on. Uh, are you sober from what you're saying? I've, I've been sober and I've been in recovery. Okay. And I don't consider those two the same thing. Right now, I would say I'm sober because I'm not acting out. I'm not right. masturbating. Okay. Because my sponsor would say to me, you're thinking again. <laughs> I've had people tell me that. Okay. <laughs> so why don't you put it to rest? If you're staying sober, more shall be revealed. And just try not figuring it out. Um Gay issues in this program are very interesting because guys get hung up about the gay issues. Uh, but the truth of the matter is they could not have a normal, committed relationship even with a gay guy. That they were addicts, whether it was with men, dogs, uh, women, they just cannot be, I call it, I couldn't be faithful to the people I was being unfaithful with. <laughs> Try figuring that one out. Okay. So that's a discussion of addiction. What we label it is brands of bottles. Most gay people, to my knowledge and experience, don't have to live a promiscuous lifestyle. You know, you don't even know a lot of times they're gay. They have their friend, they do whatever. You don't even know it. That's not our stories. Our stories is we cannot do it basically with one person, or we cannot masturbate occasionally, or whatever it is. So I wouldn't get too uptight about it. At the point you want to have a gay relationship, okay, or a gay marriage, that's where I think SAA and SLIA is very helpful for people. And where, those yeah, that's yeah. not what I'm right. for. And I'm so you just might be one of these people who needed to end up being a monk or a, <laughs> a priest or, you know, who can, who doesn't, who can deal with a celibate lifestyle. And, uh, you know, that's an existential issue that I certainly can't talk about. All I know is if you're staying sober, don't rock the boat. Okay. okay? And especially when a, a man who's... Um, where, this program is not a prohibitionist program. So we're not here to change people's orientation. We're just here to say that sobriety is based on a, if you get married, a, het a heterosexual marriage. We, I personally say to guys, hey, you can get some good 
recovery here, but if you're intending to have uh, outside a marriage relationship or a homosexual marriage, you're really going to feel more comfortable in an SAA or SOAA meeting. Um, uh, but I've never seen anyone ask not to come, especially if they're not ev being evangelic and trying to convert the meetings to their belief system. So a lot of this is don't worry about it, just don't think and stay sober one day at a time. And uh, are you asking me, should you start dating women? I'm asking you to tell me what God's will is. Yeah. <laughs> for you, right? I have enough trouble knowing it for me. <laughs> That's what I was hoping to get in my situation, because I know... Okay. Now, watch I what I do to you. Watch what I, watch what I do to you. Because we're going to be talking about this later. To thine own self be true. What was the answer you wanted me to give you? I wanted you to say that you can have a happy, fulfilled life, do the right thing, follow God, be a member of SA, and um, that's what I wanted to hear. And, and I guess that's what I'm doing. Right. So you didn't need to tell me that. So right. <laughs> We always, always have the answer. We just have the answer. It's connecting with our own answer. Thanks. Okay. Oh, you're smiling too, eh? <laughs> I feel like, um, what's that gal on the TV? On, in the newspaper, a, a, Dear, Abby. Dear Abby, a male version of Dear Abby, <laughs> right now. So I can't do all this, but it doesn't stop me from trying anyway, right? Okay, what's your question? My name is Ken, I'm a sexaholic. I was January 31st, 2009. And um, my question, you, you made a comment about uh, religion and spirituality. And uh, I find sometimes I sponsor people and um, they're... They're very religious. They're church-going. I happen to be Jewish. Um, and I'm not sure that that, maybe that inhibits me a little bit from making comments. But, uh, you know, sometimes I get the impression that religion is keeping them sick. Not that they need to change religions, but yeah. know, it's, it's hard to get, it, it's very difficult to challenge people's faith. And um, especially when you're not of the same faith. It's, it's making it more difficult. Well, my sponsor, my AA sponsor was a Catholic. And he had no trouble <laughs> telling me what to do. And this is what he would say over and over again. Chapter 5. And it was the next topic I was going to talk about, but time's getting by here. But in how it works, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time after our break, on just how it works, why people can't get the steps. We're going to find out why the steps aren't working for people. And it says, Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nothing. Nil. 
until we let go absolutely. Okay. So I've been blessed because I'm from Nashville and I worked with fundamentalist Christians for years and years. And one day, a fundamentalist Jew came in with his big beard, black hat, earlocks. And I knew what to do. And I'll tell you the story of how I knew what to do. We had a guy, a fundamentalist Christian. And at first he wouldn't come. Or a few of them because there were no word Christ in the 12 steps. And finally, he eventually came, he and this other guy. And then he kept relapsing, getting in more trouble. He, we were meeting at a gay church for a while. He wanted nothing to do with the gay people. And kind of fought us being there. And he kept relapsing. And finally, I begged him. He called me from England one day. I begged him, go to treatment, go to treatment. So he says, okay. So he calls me next. He went to a Christian treatment center. And I said, oh, God. (laughs) Well, thank God he went to a Christian treatment center. Because only they could have done this. They said to him, your disease is hiding behind Jesus. And he started to get better. He also had this thing towards African Americans. Turned out, this gay African American was attending our meetings. And years later, I found out he moved to California. Once this guy got recovery, this Christian guy, and I found out he was paying for this gay African-American's tuition. That's what recovery does to us. So I heard that expression, you're hiding behind Jesus. Well, one day, years later, this fundamentalist Christian comes, a Jew comes in, and he says, I can't come to these meetings because they're in churches. I said, I can't believe it. The same words, just a little different approach. The disease will use anything to keep you not in recovery. And this religious guy happened to be a teacher at a special school in Nashville. And he ended up at one of our conferences standing in the woman's bathroom looking at, looking at the women in the stall. <laughs> Guys, I have stories to tell you. You would have believed. Okay. So, I knew him and I knew his rabbi who was a very, very orthodox man famous orthodox man and I brought him to the his rabbi and I said rabbi this guy is very sick and he said what should we do and I said he needs to go to treatment and the rabbi says you need to go to treatment immediately 
And he says, but Rabbi, I can't. It's one of our most religious holidays in two days. And I won't have the special food and I can't travel. And, and the rabbi looked at him and said, you are so sick from this disease that you cannot differentiate one mitzvah, one law, one, in your terms, can, you know, one religious principle from another. And that's the concept that when we're in our addiction, our chooser is so rough that we cannot choose Jesus. We cannot choose God as we understand. We cannot choose Ten Commandments. We can't choose anything because we're actively in our disease. And that when we put our recovery, which I had to do, had to put my recovery before my family, before my wife, before my children, before my religion, before my profession. That I'm in a very public profession and I had to go 12-step places I was working for and break my anonymity all over Nashville. But without putting my recovery first, I have nothing. So I'm, you know, merely say to people, hey, be sure you're not hiding behind your religion right now. Cut this stuff out. And um, there's time up. Uh, when people want recovery, they get recovery. Okay, did I answer your question? Okay. If not, I had a lot of stories to tell you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.